This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. Today, we'd like to make the argument that LGBTQ plus care is not as niche as you might expect. And for health system strategists, it might be that growth segment that you are not focused on, but a terrific opportunity. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Durin. Today, we have a topic for Pride Month that I'm particularly excited to discuss, and that's the opportunity for health systems to build primary care services targeting the LGBTQ plus community. Urban versus rural markets, red states versus blue states are going to have really unique considerations, but those externalities don't really change the size and scope of this opportunity. And so we want to take this opportunity to talk about the business case, talk about why this is a critical segment from a patient, workforce, and community perspective for health systems to have a dedicated strategy around. My colleague, Justin Cassidy, who leads our medicine teams on our community health practice, is joining me today to lead us through the discussion. Justin, kick us off. Is it new for health systems to focus on the LGBTQ plus community? Trevor, it's such an interesting question. It's not new per se, but the level and degree of which their health systems are open about this it reflects this sort of wider sociological acceptance of this group and cohort. It falls into both external and internal forces. I just want to make sure that I'm not positioned as the expert in this space. I do not speak for all in the community. I'm not even sure anyone really can because this community is so incredibly diverse. Some in the LGBTQ plus community may not appreciate the spotlight that these services provide, and they might not even be comfortable sharing their identity with providers and health systems. And in other places, there might be an unfortunate reality with legislative processes in place that restrict access to care. And the international landscape is even more complex for these folks. Just be aware that all of our listeners may be at a different place in their evolution, their beliefs, and their politics here. At SG2, and in particular on our community health practice, we closely follow trends, research everything and anything as it impacts healthcare utilization, even if it's challenging, and impacts on care redesign. We also interview systems across the country interested in building these sort of innovative services, LGBTQ plus care included. And today we'd like to make the argument that LGBTQ plus care is not as niche as you might expect. And for health system strategists, it might be that growth segment that you are not focused on, but a terrific opportunity. Trevor, to go back to your original question, is it new for health systems to focus on the LGBTQ plus segment? It is because of the normalization in society, the overall acceptance, the ability of social media to share stories, and the fact that family and friends are now strong advocates for these space. And as well, colleagues, as we see uh, DEIB initiatives at many corporations really kind of stressing that folks should be free to be comfortable living their authentic lives. The political landscape is complex, but what's interesting here is that it often enhances advocacy efforts rather than hinders them, particularly within the healthcare space, as we're interested in promoting the health of all members of our communities. This really underlies the mission of all of our clients at SG2 and Vizient. Internally, within healthcare, there are a few reasons why this is accelerated strategic focus as well. The first, most obvious, is the business bottom line. This is a growth segment, and there are certain aspects here that should be on the radar of all savvy business leaders, including gender-affirming surgery and ancillary services associated with HIV, pre-exposure, prophylaxis, sports medicine, and the like. Within, your workforce is incredibly diverse, and serving LGBTQ plus patients often serves your workforce and their missions as well. There's a bit of a blurred boundary between your staff and your patients. From the bottom up, 
there's also been a big generational shift as medical students, nursing students, pharmacy students, and advanced practitioners that are newly trained are coming into the workforce with changed expectations for how they're interacting with their colleagues and coworkers. And finally, at SG2, we've often talked about the unengaged patients being healthcare's blind spot. And hospitals and health systems are often looking at primary care and trying to engage patients. Now, the LGBTQ plus community is often very proactive, very engaged, and those patients experiencing gender dysmorphia want to change themselves for the better, which might be a, a different from some that may not necessarily be as motivated to improve their health. This sort of serving folks that are highly inspired to be partners in care can really counter burnout with your providers. They can see firsthand that transformative change that those seeking these services are hoping to achieve. Justin, I agree. You framed that really well. Healthcare in general, especially health systems, we're kind of just getting good at any kind of segmentation. And when we think about the LGBTQ plus community, it spans races, genders, age, religions, and social class. Trying to even think about this as one big group or segment from a strategic perspective is probably really ineffective. How are systems working within that? It's so true. Patients and their families in the LGBTQ plus spectrum are incredibly diverse. There's a lot of intersectionality. They're ethnically diverse, spiritually diverse, older, younger, so generationally spans the spectrum. Socioeconomic differences, education levels vary tremendously. Everyone has different careers, different degrees of privilege. And these shared identities often can serve as hubs of interaction to amplify the great work that our health system members are already doing to address other segments of community health. This is certainly an opportunity to build one program that can intersect with others to grow trust within the system. As we think about that LGBTQ plus segment, it's really fascinating to understand the difference and diversity within those experiencing sexual and gender minorities. First and foremost, Trevor, sexual orientation is separate from gender identity, and both of those are much more diverse than you might think. And there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of subcategories within both of those. So as we think about subsegmenting, this is a challenge for anyone. Case in point, Many folks self-declare their sexual and gender identities on social media. Facebook started with discrete bins and then realized that they couldn't keep up with all those that the communities are self-identifying with. And now they just have a blank and you can kind of fill it in. Instagram, TikTok, and emerging platforms like Discord or Telegram, dating apps and other social media platforms have incredibly active community engagement within many of these subsegment cohorts. Thinking about all of that diversity, it is a challenge for health systems to deliver services that are marketed to a discrete category. This is a segment that really defies segmentation. And it's often very difficult to do things like even change language surrounding services. For instance, some of our members really struggle with even what signs to have on walls. A woman's health clinic might even change to a more OB-GYN clinic as all those experiencing services in that setting may have a different type of identity. These can be very active discussions within a health system in terms of marketing. And I think it reflects a wider trend in society. Trevor, in fashion, there's something called full fashion now, and it's the idea that sizes having kind of gender breakouts between male, female may not reflect the gender identity of the folks that are purchasing clothes. Clearly, there's a blurring of boundaries, too, within certain fashion trends. And so it's not just in healthcare. That's you know certainly not an isolated case, but certainly probably thinking about this segment is a struggle. Thanks for outlining that. Let's get back to kind of the core of how we set this up. Let's make the business case. How are health system strategic priorities going to align with tailoring services to this segment? 
No, it's really important to understand that there's often an unmet community health need within this segment. There are a lot of health inequities that have been historically experienced by the LGBTQ plus community. These include the need for behavioral health services, addiction services, in particular smoking cessation, healthy weight loss programs, sexually transmitted disease clinics, HIV treatment and prevention, social isolation in older LGBTQ plus populations that may have lost connections earlier in life when society was in a different place in its evolution. One of the most significant aspects of unmet community health need is that of HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. And this is a pill, once a day pill that is taken to prevent HIV infection in at-risk cohorts. Appropriate treatment guidelines require regular monitoring and testing, regular cadence of patient E&M visits, and of course, the downstream ancillary services that might be necessary for those folks. This is an opportunity to prevent incident infections, but also to reach a larger cohort. Only about a quarter of those that qualify for this HIV prevention therapy are actually receiving treatment. There's a market growth opportunity across the board, but a growth opportunity that aligns with community health need. And that's clearly the take home. So Justin, we talk about this as a growth segment. What are the projections for how the LGBTQ plus community is going to grow in the next 10 years? This is one that we often receive at SG2. Over the years, we've been following surveys where patients self-declare their status. The question often is who identifies as something other than heterosexual. And over the years, what we've seen is a very strong uptick of folks that are self-declaring as something other than heterosexual. And even from 2020, there was a Gallup poll that said it was about 5.6% of the population. In 2022, just a few months ago, Gallup did another poll and it came out at 7.1%. So 5.6% in 2020 to 7.1%. That's double the percentage of 2012 when Gallup first measured that. The hypothesis is that patients and folks are feeling more comfortable declaring that they identify with something other than heterosexual. And so with that overall sociological change, they're seeing more self-declaration. Now, to get at this sort of sub-segment analysis, Trevor, there is a very strong and very striking generational divide. And certainly, we can share the link to this Gallup survey, but within Gen Z, for instance, that self-identification as a member of the LGBTQ plus community is 20.8%. Wow. So very, very strong. And it's incredibly generationally driven. So millennials, it's 10.5%. Gen X, 4.2%. Baby boomers, 2.6%. And traditionalists, 0.8%. This is a significant difference in generational acceptance. Over time, as we think about growth, it's not that these folks are not there. They just don't feel emboldened to be able to self-declare. This is also, from a health system perspective, a significant struggle as we're hoping to measure and monitor those that are in the sexual and gender minority subcohort. Even patient intake forms, for instance, patients may not feel comfortable declaring. And that sort of data collection practice is right now really top of mind to many of our health system members. We've heard the business case. We've heard why this isn't even a segment, but many segments to try and serve. We've heard about many of the challenges. Tell me about some health systems that are doing a great job in this space. What's the recipe for a good program? The first and foremost thing to say is it's all the great things that you're already doing. Because LGBTQ plus patients are patients in broad. They experience all of the same needs that everyone else does. Those that excel in this space, it's not so much the what. You're already producing high quality, excellent care. It's about the how. And here the most obvious is things like proper pronoun usage. That's table stakes to engage this cohort. And sensitivity training from all staff is key. So interacting with others that may not share your beliefs is a mark of professionalism. And we all 
have room for improvement there. This is a certainly an evolution for all of us, but a noble one. The programs that excel, it's about that sort of approach, that cultural sensitivity from the onset. Now, as we look to those that do a particularly good job in this space, it's FQHCs, community health clinics. They've been the ones on the front lines throughout the HIV epidemic in the 80s. They have had trials by fire, and they realize there are specific strategies to really address patients that have been marginalized and experienced social stigma. In Chicago, Howard Brown is an excellent example. NYC Plus in New York, so traditionally in urban areas, but many programs that have that outreach and traditional interaction with the community are very positioned in this space. Otherwise, we see many players like University of Chicago Medicine, which has a robust program. They even have a mobile clinic, a converted van, if you will, that includes interview space, exam sections to actually travel to communities that may require LGBTQ plus types of services. NYU was just featured in the New York Times as having a significant gender affirming surgical program in play, and they're attracting destination patient volumes from across the country in a, a very strong growth space. And they have very long wait lists that is not unique to their program. As we talk to other programs across the country, there often are significant wait lists for gender affirming surgical programs. And we continue to see this as a growth opportunity. Northwestern Medicine has a urology clinic that really serves LGBTQ people that have a prostate that are living with cancer and their unique healthcare needs. From a virtual outreach perspective, we've heard that Exeter has a very comprehensive LGBTQ plus program, really exemplary, and they're able to reach out with virtual primary care visits to rural populations with a virtual first type of encounter that can help build trust and then downstream engagement with the system for primary care utilization. I'll close with the fact that health systems are not the only ones that are seeing a terrific growth potential in the LGBTQ plus space. And there are a ton of digital health companies that are specifically targeting this cohort. One included health, a care concierge platform for the LGBTQ plus community. It pairs patients with physicians and was recently acquired a combination of Grand Rounds Health and Doctor on Demand. So they're starting to achieve scale. Queerly is an online marketplace where LGBTQ plus people can connect with vetted and, and trained providers, telehealth tools, and also a concierge health type of model. Violet is a mental health digital health company. It's a startup run for and by the LGBTQ plus community. Plume is a digital health service that's focused on the transgender community and has expanded into employee benefits. Certainly, that is a strategic opportunity for those that are looking to increase their stance in HRC rankings. Corporate America is clearly driving a lot of this change. Plume Health delivers virtual gender-affirming care, and it's kind of a state-by-state -state difference in terms of what they're able to provide. Some states, they can only provide estrogen services, some testosterone and estrogen. I'll close with the example of Folks Care, another digital health company targeting the transgender community. The innovative example there is that they provide not only comprehensive care services, but also really cool educational outreach videos and so on, online seminars for members of the community that can share their lived experience and help us all understand and align our care redesign efforts with the aims and ambitions of the communities they serve. Justin, that's a great run through. And what it really highlights to me is there's not great data to size the market. But we know it's a growing segment and you can either as a health system ignore this patient population and this potential workforce, or you have to be really smart about building targeted sympathetic services or you're going to absolutely miss out. Thanks so much for running through this. Justin, you did a great job. I know it's sensitive, tough material to go through, but thanks so much for joining us and sharing your perspective today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Trevor.
Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes, and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Visient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at visientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.